Mark chapter 10. A couple of days ago, I was driving with my daughter, and uh, there was some traffic in the way, so we took a detour, and then I realized we ran into some other traffic going that way, so we took another detour, and eventually we made it to our destination, Uh, but uh, I was reminded of that as I considered what we're doing this morning. We were on a detour a little bit from the going through uh, section by section the book of Daniel, and... uh, considering angels and demons and how we are to respond to them, but uh, including last week's uh, guest speaker and then this morning, we're taking a little bit of a detour even from that this morning as well. And we're going to consider a passage that is about entering the kingdom of God. And it seemed appropriate in light of talking about, or in light of what's going on this morning, uh, people confessing their faith in Jesus Christ, as well as us talking uh, about God's plans for the kingdom of God in the book of Daniel to consider how it is that one might not just know about the kingdom of God, but actually be sure that when Jesus returns and when he brings his kingdom with his holy angels as he has promised, that we actually are in it. That we might know how to enter into the kingdom of God. I want to read verses uh, 13 through 27. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. As we arrive at this section, you may have noticed already that in the order of the narrative that Mark describes, there are a couple of instances, a couple of events 
that stand quite in uh, interesting juxtaposition to one another. Side by side, these two events have a message for us. And the message is that there are two different ways of approaching Jesus, two different dispositions as for trying to make your way into the kingdom of God. And the difference and the distinction between these two approaches and these two dispositions literally is a matter of life and death. Not just temporal life and death, but eternal life and death. It is an eternal matter. It is a matter that determines your destiny. How do you approach the kingdom of God? How do you, uh, to use an older word, deign to enter the kingdom of God? How do you see it as necessary that you would approach God and try to be one of those who will be part of his kingdom. And the two responses here, the two types of responses that are described are instructive for us. And what we're going to find in this text is two kinds of responses to the offer of the kingdom of God through salvation in Jesus Christ. It's not two individual parties who do this. It's not as if there is one child and one rich young ruler, but there are two different types of responses that are typified here. One illustrated by the children and the other illustrated by a real person who rejected Jesus because he was unwilling to enter the kingdom on the terms that Jesus laid down, the only kinds of terms that God sets. And so this is a text that answers for us the question, who will enter the kingdom of God? In verses 13 through 16, we learn the way that we must respond if we are going to enter the kingdom of God. That is, you must receive the kingdom through childlike faith. You must receive the kingdom through childlike faith. It says that they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. There is a crowd of people in verse 1, the scene here. Jesus went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. He taught them in the first section of this all the way through verse 12 about divorce and adultery and matters with regard to that. But there is this crowd. And this crowd now is bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them. These are young children, maybe from uh, infants all the way up to, you know, around age 12 is what the word typically indicates. And uh, they wanted Jesus to touch them. And in Matthew's account of this story, he makes a note that they were wanting Jesus to pray for them, to pray for these children. Seemingly enough innocent of a request. But the disciples, these holy ones, or so they thought in their own mind, rebuked them. They rebuked these children. Now, it's not as if this is just some isolated incident with regard to the disciples. They are in the habit, the recent habit, in fact, of rebuking people for all kinds of wrong reasons. In chapter 9, verse 36, we read, Taking a child, he set him before them and taking him in his arms. Uh, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And then he goes on, teacher, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Jesus says, don't hinder him. There's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me for he who is not against us is for us. 
So he recognizes or Mark acknowledges that these disciples are, they tend to do this right now. And the problem here is they're wrongly limiting people who can come to Jesus. They think that they are the gatekeepers for access to him. And it's not just that they're trying to keep certain people away from him, but they're doing so on the wrong terms. And so Jesus has a problem with this. Jesus has a problem with their activity. And this means that in verse 14, he rebukes the children. The disciples reject the children, but Jesus rebukes, sorry, not the children, but the disciples. Jesus rebukes his disciples. The disciples rebuked the crowd for doing this, but Jesus has another target for his rebuke. And it says, when Jesus saw this, verse 14, he was indignant. He was really angry. It was as if he couldn't believe that they would do this. This is displeasure expressed strongly. And he says to them, do not get in the way. Permit the children to come to me. Permit them, allow them, don't hinder them, he says. Don't make it difficult for these children to get here. Don't stand in their way. Don't tell people not to bring them. Let them come to me. Don't hinder the children from coming. And he corrects their understanding about something. And this is the reason why Jesus said that he wants the children to come to him. And it isn't just because Jesus loves the little children, although Jesus is quite loving toward them, is he not? When we read in verse 16, he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. But it's because children coming to him come with a certain attitude that not everyone comes to him with. And it is a temporal or a physical representation of the kind of attitude that everyone who comes to Jesus must have if they're going to enter the kingdom of God. Here Jesus corrects his disciples and he says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. This is the kind of person This is the kind of attitude expressed in a person who enters the kingdom of God, who possesses the kingdom of God, who inherits it, to whom the kingdom of God belongs. Why is it that Jesus is upset? Is it because we should prefer children over parents? Is it because because of something like that? No, it's a spiritually focused reason. He says people like children are the ones who get the kingdom of God. What is it about children that that it makes someone fit for the kingdom of God if they are like a child? Is it their immaturity? Is it their ignorance of certain things because they haven't learned it yet? Is it because they don't care about adult kinds of things? No, it's none of that. But there are things about children that are true in approaching someone in the way that they act that are representative of what someone must be like if they come to Jesus. They're helpless in certain ways. They need help from others. They're dependent. They are guileless. They're not trying to trick you in the way that they come to you. This is not necessarily the case that children never practice any kind of guile or deceit, but there is a sincerity that's implied here. They're not trying to earn their way to you. In addition to this, these are people that don't really seem as important to certain people in the world. Jesus sees them, sees that they are. Children are trusting. They come to you in these ways. The significance of children coming 
They're not impressive. They're not the ones who are going to bring a whole lot to Jesus in terms of what they offer. They don't have the money to bring. They don't have position and prestige. They don't have a lifelong accumulation of things that they can impress Jesus with. And so they have, in one sense, nothing to offer him. Sometimes we think that this is who Jesus wants or needs. The impressive people, you know, the people who have really done well in life, the people who are something, who are important in the sight of the world, they have something to offer. But Jesus says it's just the opposite. It's people who come with no pretense, no claim of merit. They're not trying to bargain to get Jesus. And in fact, it's the people that very often the world thinks, and we're tempted to think, doesn't matter so much. In James chapter 2 The church is rebuked because of the way that they treated certain people. Starting in the first verse, he says this, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there. Or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? What's James saying? That God chose only the poor? Of course not. He's not saying that poverty is in itself meritorious. What he's saying is even poor people are chosen by God for salvation. He chose them to be rich in faith. He didn't leave them out. He didn't exclude them because they don't have something to offer people in financial or temporal terms. This is the very kind of person that God is not only perfectly fine with being a Christian and with entering the kingdom of God, but that he went out of his way to make sure is the person who enters the kingdom of God. In fact, if anything, it skews that direction. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you'd like to look there, starting in verse 26, it says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the things of the world, uh, the, the weak things of the world, to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. When God brings people into his kingdom, he doesn't want them to get there and say, I'm here because I deserve it or I earned it. He wants them to not boast before him, to not be proud, but to be humble and to recognize that everything they have is a gift from him. He goes on, but by his doing, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the kind of person that enters the kingdom. Someone who doesn't try to be impressive to God. Someone who doesn't come to God with a claim that you have to let me in because I'm so good. I've earned my way. I've followed your rules. I've done everything right. To such people as children instead belong the kingdom of God. So this is the way. This is the way in. This is the way to become part of the kingdom. The kingdom of God belongs to 
such as these. And so he says not only to, does the kingdom belong to such as these, but the other lesson is the kingdom of God must be received like a child. This is who it belongs to. And if you want in, you must become like a child. He says, you have to become like a child. Now, again, this doesn't mean that you act in ways that are just typically immature with regard to human development. He's not saying that you have to go and, you know, cast off all kinds of uh, conduct that would be typical of adulthood. But in the way of approaching God, you have to come with this kind of humility and lack of trying to be personally significant and trying to be impressive. So verse 15, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. There are a lot of ways that people would presume to come into the kingdom of God. They want to come in and keep their pride, their reputation. They want to keep their significance. They want to keep their autonomy, their independence. They want to keep their prestige. They, want to have to, they don't want to have to lower themselves they don't want to be thought of poorly. They don't want to have to admit and acknowledge all that's wrong with them. It's hard to admit when you've done things that are sinful. It's hard to admit that you are completely at the mercy of God. People don't like to do that. They like to hold on to just a little bit of that. They like to hold on to a little bit of worldly approval. They like to hold on to a little bit of not confessing these particular sins but Jesus says, unless you come with the humility, sincerity, dependence of a child, then you're not going to enter the kingdom of God at all. It's a little bit like a man in the Old Testament named uh, Naaman, the Syrian. 2 Kings 3 recounts the story. In the era of Elisha, the prophet, this is what happens. I'll read the first few verses of that chapter. Now, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. But the man was also a valiant warrior. Uh, the man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now, the Arameans had gone into, out into bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Now the king of Aram said, Go now, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him six, uh, with ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. What's he doing? He's trying to bring all the stuff to, to get this done. So he brought the letter to the king of Israel. He starts to get this conflict. Uh, eventually the word gets to Elijah. Verse 8, it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you'll be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought... He'll surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God and 
His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Here he is. He's so important. He's got his ideas. He has his way. This is the way that God should cleanse me. This is the way that the man of God should do this. Why would I go to such a little river like the Jordan? But eventually, he humbled himself. And what happened? God gave him grace. So it is with salvation. People want to do it their way. They want to do it in a way that maintains their pride, their reputation, their prestige. They don't want to have to humble themselves. They just add Jesus to their own self-righteousness and want everything to be okay. Jesus says you can't do that. You want to come into the kingdom of heaven, you got to be like a little child. Not ignorance, not immaturity, but humility, dependence, coming to Jesus on his terms, knowing that he is the only one who can give you what you need. Back in Mark 10, Jesus blesses the children. He blesses the children. Verse 16, he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. It should be the case that all of us would want to go to Jesus. Yes, even the little children should desire to go near such a one as the Son of God, the one who is kind even to those who are not impressive in the sight of the world. We need to come to Jesus like him if we're going to enter the kingdom of God at all. So you must receive the kingdom through childlike faith if you're going to receive the kingdom. But there is a warning on the other side. There is, um, unfortunately, an object study in someone who didn't pursue Jesus like this, but a different way. And the warning is here, starting in verse 17, and that warning is this. Do not reject the kingdom in self-sufficient pride. Do not reject the kingdom in self-sufficient pride. Verse 17 picks up about Jesus as he was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We find in these next few verses Jesus' interaction with a rich man. His interaction with a rich man. And the first thing we notice is this rich man's earnestness. His earnestness. He runs up to him, he kneels down, he speaks respectfully, and he asks what he needs to do. This really seems like this guy gets it. He is pursuing eternal life with all his might, and he's coming to the right place. Jesus is the one who has the answers, and he even refers to him as a good teacher, maybe even the good teacher. This is the kind of person that really seems like they're on the right path. We, of course, know from having read the story and maybe being very familiar with it for many years that he doesn't end up in the right place. But there's a caution here for us, isn't there? So often we just want to bring people into the kingdom of God on our own because they seem earnest about the truth and they talk about Jesus. And we're like, yeah, they're a Christian. But they haven't got to the heart of the matter at all where they're willing to humble themselves under the authority of God. They're not willing to come the right way. They're not willing to give up everything, as Jesus says, that this man must be willing to do. Yet we want to label them as a Christian because they do the kinds of things that this man does right here. Notice, Jesus doesn't answer his question. Instead, he addresses his concept of goodness. The rich man's misunderstanding His misunderstanding is on display in verse 18, and Jesus highlights this. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Strikes us as strange, doesn't it? 
Because we know that Jesus is good. He even calls himself such things as the good shepherd. So he is good and he actually is God as well. So when he says no one is good except God alone, uh, he, it seems like he may be distancing himself from that on the surface, but that's not the case. What is he doing? Well, he is simply trying to elevate and say, if you're looking at a human as the standard of goodness, then you got to make sure you get this right instead. God is the standard. Unless he's willing to identify Jesus as God, then he shouldn't say Jesus is the standard either. We rightly understand Jesus to be the Son of God and to be fully God. And so we can say that he is good, just as good as the Father. No distinction in that way. But this man wasn't thinking in those terms. So Jesus says, you need to even step back and think about what is really good. Jesus then highlights and exposes the man's confidence, the rich man's confidence What is he trusting in? And he does this in a very strategic and interesting way. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. These are instructions from the law of Moses. Most specifically, the Ten Commandments. These are the things you are told to do. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what the rules are. And you know even what Moses said, most likely, that if you do these things, you will live. And this uh, young man has an answer for him. I've kept all these things from my youth up. I've kept all these things from my youth up. This man needs to understand something. And Jesus wants to highlight this for him. And he will highlight this for him, which is, That doing good, doing good things, even doing good things that are commanded by God are not enough. That action is not enough. It is the wrong path. And the scripture makes this clear. Though it is right to do the things that God commands, it's wrong to think that doing those right things brings righteousness to you. The Jews missed this during Jesus' time and really not just during that time, but very often in Romans 10 Starting in verse 2, Paul says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What is the law there for? He says in Galatians 3, It was meant to be our tutor to lead us to Christ. It's supposed to drive us there. But they missed that. Paul himself testified about this in Philippians 3. He says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. He identified himself in this way just as this young man did. And they looked at the law and they said, look, I've kept all this stuff. Paul thought that that made him righteous in God's sight. But when he came to Christ, he realized that's not the way things work. Even if you could hypothetically keep this perfectly, the law was not given for this. It was not given for righteousness. There's another way. And it's the way we have to enter. 
Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This Pharisee, or excuse me, this young ruler seemed to think that if he did the commandments that this could get him to eternal life, or at least he had been doing them with that in view. Paul most definitely thought that righteousness came from doing the law, but as it turns out, he had to actually find righteousness another way. If he was going to stand before God with no guilt and being treated as perfect, it couldn't come through the things that he had done It had to be through abandoning everything about himself and putting his faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This ruler, this man, had a misplaced faith. Just as the Apostle Paul in his former life had a misplaced faith. It was in doing all the things that he did. It was in all that he had and all that he had done and not placing his faith upon another object, namely the person of Jesus Christ. So he says, I've kept all these things from my youth up. This this was an earnest man. This was someone who had diligently done these things. This wasn't some kind of a, a reprobate. This was someone who eagerly sought eternal life. But did he actually approach it the right way? And that's the problem. This attitude at the core was wrong. We look in verse 21 and 22 at the rich man's rejection, his rejection. Namely, not the rejection of him first and foremost, but his rejection of Christ. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. This may be one of the most surprising statements in the Bible. This is not the way that we hear people talk about unbelieving people, is it? But Jesus, of all perfectly righteous people, felt a love for this man. He he can see that this man is depending upon his own righteousness. He observes that, but he sees that he's earnest. He, he, He cares for him. He feels compassion upon him. This is a challenging example for us. Jesus is the one who does not condone sin. He has just rebuked his own disciples. He's not against calling out sin where it's there. But he also looks at this man and says, I, I'm, I have a love for him. I care about him. And so he says, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. As we well know, Jesus is not saying salvation is by giving away all your possessions. In fact, you can do that, 1 Corinthians 13 says, and be nothing. In Acts 5, we have an account where it's very clear from Peter that when Ananias and Sapphira sold their house, they could have just kept the money and there would have been nothing wrong, except that they lied and said that they gave all the money that they got from the sale of the house. But there was nothing wrong with just keeping the money. 
it was theirs. You don't have to become poor to get eternal life. So what's Jesus doing? He's testing him. He's putting him to the test. What are you willing to give up for the sake of Christ? What are you willing to give up for eternal life? And he says, you got to follow me. And in your case, what you've got to do, you've got to sell all your stuff and give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and you come and follow me. He wasn't willing to do that. Verse 22, at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And here he is, and Jesus has put his finger just on the right place to expose that this is not the kind of person who's going to enter the kingdom. This is the breaking point. He is, uh, he's grieving. You would think that he would say, well, now you've answered my question. Thank you. Because this is what he asked up first. Good teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? But now that Jesus has told him the one thing he's missing, he says, I'm not down with that. I'm not willing to do that. And I'm not willing to follow you. He was willing to add a lot of good works, but he wasn't willing to give up that which he held most dear to have eternal life. There is a lesson there, is there not? Many times people want Jesus, they want eternal life, but they're unwilling to come to him because they are concerned about what this might mean for them to have to give up. He was forced to make a choice, his possessions or eternal life, and he chose wrongly. Jesus here draws a line in the sand for him and for us. What are you going to choose? Your stuff, your situation in this life, or eternal life? He was one who owned much property, but he gained the world and gave up his own soul. How does Jesus talk about this? Let's consider his interpretation of what just happened. Jesus' interpretation of the rich man's rejection. Jesus says, he speaks of the difficulty of entering the kingdom. Verse 23, looking around, he said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. This may have been surprising to them by mere virtue of the fact that richness or wealth was connected in many ways with, um, in their expectation and their understanding with righteousness. You know, if you're wealthy, then this must mean something. Uh, here, he says, it's very hard for someone to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Because they have to be willing to give up all the stuff that makes them feel secure, that gives them all the stuff they value in this life. That's why it's especially hard for someone who is rich, but not just rich in exact financial terms, but who has anything. People who are impressive, people who have reputation, people who have friends, people who are well-liked, people who are popular. It's very difficult for them to give those things up. When you long for that stuff, just understand the danger that that presents. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for that. The disciples get it. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? They say, this is not even possible. How can this happen? But Jesus says, there is a possibility of entering the kingdom of God. With people it is impossible, verse 27 but not with God, for all things are possible with God. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is powerful. He is able 
to be kind to us. Even though we are blinded by Satan's lies and deception, even though we're blinded by a love for this world, 2 Corinthians 4 says that God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He opens our eyes. He's gracious to us. He sent his son Jesus into the world so that we might believe in him. And he shows us his grace and the salvation that we receive. All things are possible with God. Even someone who has rejected Christ, someone who has not come to salvation, can turn to him. If that's you this morning, you can do this. It's a good time for self-evaluation. And it's a good time for giving thanks. Because none of us on our own would respond in this way. But God is so gracious and so kind that many people with whom it would be impossible apart from God, many people will enter the kingdom of God because all things are possible with him. We're going to pray and in a moment we'll hear about those who are entering the kingdom like children. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can... uh, have a salvation that comes that's not dependent upon our own impressiveness, our own self-sufficiency, anything that we possess, but only what you give. Father, we thank you for this time when we can come and hear about those testifying to your grace. And we pray that you would be abundantly merciful to those who have not received your grace, that they would be encouraged from this text to respond to the gospel. We pray that you'd help us to trust in Christ and his work alone and that you'd be glorified by that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.